0: a famine arose in that country and he began to be in need so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him, kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat, and celebrate. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found.
1: Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus, his goodness and his grace. And I pray, Lord God, that right now, by your spirit, you would enlarge our hearts, awaken our souls and unveil our eyes to see this good news. This good news of great joy for all people. We pray this for our good, we pray this for your glory, and we pray this in the precious, beautiful, and wonderful name of Jesus, and all of God's people said with one super loud voice, amen, amen, amen. well, g'day City on a Hill, how are we all doing? Come on, it's so good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, my name is Guy. Joy and privilege as always to serve uh, as the pastor of City on a Hill, a controversial church committed to knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Can you believe it? today we celebrate 15 years of God's goodness and grace. Uh, And as a special treat, we are joining live with all of our City on a Hill churches. So I want to send a special g'day to our churches in Melbourne, Melbourne West and Melbourne East. We want to go up north and say a big g'day to City on a Hill Brisbane and our family on the Gold Coast. We want to say g'day to Joel and the wonderful team at City on a Hill Wollongong. We want to keep that Cheers going for City on a Hill, uh, Geelong and Surf Coast, uh, and and uh, uh, and for the very first time, can we make a lot of noise in the history of the church? Can we welcome City on a Hill, Whittington? Let's make a lot of noise for them. How good it is that we can gather together as God's people. Well, 2007 was a big year uh, for our church. Uh, thanks to a partnership between St James Old Cathedral and St Jude's in Carlton, uh, myself and my wife, we joined a small group Bible study—a small group with a big vision to make uh, a difference in our city with the gospel of Jesus. Uh, I was uh, 27 years of age at the time, uh, never led a church before, never planted a church before, and to be perfectly honest, had almost no idea uh, for what God would have on the horizon ahead. Uh, People often ask, uh, what was it like in those early days? Uh, I remember... Uh, moving into the city with my wife, uh, moving into an apartment, cardboard boxes everywhere. At that time, our youngest child, still a little girl, in my wife's uh, in my wife's tummy. So much anticipation, so much expectation. I remember standing on the rooftop of our apartment, looking out over the city of Melbourne, and just praying, God, would you move in love and power? I remember the sense of uncertainty. And doubt that I wrestled with. Standing outside of our apartment on a Tuesday rainy evening in Melbourne as we hosted our small group Bible study and getting text message after text message from everyone saying they couldn't come, they couldn't make it. Eventually, nobody turned up. We were just two weeks in and we couldn't even get a Bible study together. And I know looking back now, it sounds so silly and small. But at the moment, I really, truly wondered whether this church would ever have its first service, isn't it amazing, though, how God has a way of surprising us with His goodness and His grace. Now here we are in just the first months uh, 2007, my wife and I walking through Docklands, looking for a possible venue that this church might eventually gather in. And there was no obvious contenders. There was no big auditoriums or, or church buildings, just restaurants and, and apartments. We end up having dinner at the James Squire Brewhouse, this two-story pub overlooking the water. And we, we say to each other, wouldn't this be a great place for a church to gather? It had leather couches, had a projector and a screen so we could do worship. It had a bar so we could have communion on tap it's like, this would be fantastic. The next morning, I'm being interviewed at the oldest Anglican church in Melbourne, St. James Old Cathedral. There's about 15 people there that day. I'm being interviewed, just sharing a little bit about the vision that God has placed on our heart. And the end of that service, as we're enjoying some scones and jam and cream a couple comes up to me and they say look we're not from Melbourne we're from Sydney we just happened to hear the church bells and wandered on in but we really love this vision that God has for you and we'd love to help I said well we need all the help that we can get they say well we happen to own this uh the, the, this this pub it's called the James Squire Brewhouse have you heard of it I say yeah I was there last night and they said well, would you like to use it free of charge for the church I think about it for a little bit I said yes Uh, The media uh, ran so many stories about the launch of this church. This is one of my favorite. You can see me there with my wife there on the the left and our youngest girl, (laughs) Summer, who's 15 now. Uh, My favorite quote towards the end, the journalist says, the new church is a 21st century creation. Parishioners email each other and the website has YouTube videos. (laughs) Oh, we were cutting edge. Uh, It is amazing to stand here today, to stand with you and all of our churches near and, and far, uh, just reflecting on the goodness of God's grace. I love this church. I love you. Uh, I'm so incredibly thankful for the many men and women who make up this church and the churches we're part of. I I thank God for your prayers, your generosity, the the service you do behind the scenes that no one sees, the ways you've loved people, cared for people, the way you've set to put Jesus first in all. Um, A lot has changed uh, since this church uh, started. Uh, Certainly the culture. We are now in feels a little bit different to the culture when we first began. You know, in our first service, you know, people, first years, people were giving us venues. Now there's been reports in media that some of those venues might be taken away. Uh, In our very first service, uh, the Lord Mayor of Melbourne actually turned up to cheer us on and encourage us. Uh, 15 years on, I'm not sure the Premier of our state is quite as enthusiastic. In the early years of our church, I did interviews on Sunrise with Koshy. And he was nice. (laughs) A lot has changed. One thing that has not changed, and Lord willing, will never change, and that is our passion for Jesus. Jesus. Jesus continues to be our hope. Jesus continues to be our life. Jesus continues to be good news of great joy for all who believe. Thank you for being a church all about Jesus. Thank you for encouraging one another to be all about Jesus. Thank you for inspiring me to be a person who's all about Jesus. We love Jesus. We want to know him and we want to make him known. Um, This morning, we're going to be reminded of the good news of the gospel. I want us to be reminded of who it is that gathers us together this day, this grace that is available to you right now, and indeed this grace that is going to be our future as we walk together. So if you have a Bible handy, come with me to Luke chapter 15. Uh, Luke sets the scene by telling us that Jesus is preaching the gospel and 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 he tells us specifically that there, there's some sinners and tax collectors drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees, who are kind of like the religious political elite, see these sinners and tax collectors. They see these drunks and drug addicts and prostitutes, and they see the tattoos and the right, they see all of this and they begin to grumble amongst one another, saying, Who is this guy who's welcoming sinners? And Jesus responds so powerfully, as he so often does, by telling three stories. The first is the story of a lost sheep. The second is the story of a lost coin. In verse 11, which is where we're going to focus today, we hear the story of the lost son. He says, there was a man who had two sons. So here we are introduced to a father uh, who has two boys. Now, there's an entire sermon here uh, that we could focus on, the older brother. But for the purpose of today, I want us to just focus our attention on the youngest, the youngest son. We're not given much about his background, only that he's wanting to stand on his own two feet, only that he's wanting to kind of escape it all and, and live his own life, be his own man. And so late one afternoon, as the sun is setting and his father returns from work, the young boy says to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, you might like to underscore the word property because it's actually a translation of the Greek word bios, from which we get the word biology. The point being that the father's estate is more than bricks and mortar. It is his life, a life, a property, a life that has been built up with love and memories. To quote the great Daryl Kerrigan, it's not a house, it is my home. But here is the son demanding that the father tear it all up and hand it over. Now let's not forget that this is the father who was there for this boy on the day he was born. He was there at the first day of school. He held the bike to help the young child learn how to ride. This is the the father who has been by his bedside praying for him, reading him Bible stories, encouraging him, and yet here is the son forgetting those former years disregarding all that has been established in this home, dishonouring the father he was called to love. Uh, In the ancient world, to demand your inheritance while your father is still alive is akin to spitting in his face. In effect, it's saying, I wish you were dead. Jesus says, and the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Stuffing his clothes and cash into his bag, uh, the young man says goodbye to his old life and jumps on the first train out of there. You can see him, can't you? Sitting in the last carriage... Looking out to the window, his mind imagining all that awaits him in that distant country. It's important to see that when Jesus speaks of a distant country, he's indicating much more than the young man's desire to see the world. Uh, he speaks of a drastic cutting loose from the way of living, thinking, and acting that has been handed down to him by his father. In the words of Henry Nguyen, the distant country is the world in which everything considered holy at home is disregarded. Now, this explanation is significant, not only in giving us some historical context for the parable itself, but because it summons me to see myself in the younger son. The truth is that our Father in heaven made us to know and enjoy Him. Whether you grew up going to church or, like myself, never went to church, the truth of the Bible is that we've been made by God. He knitted me together in my mother's womb. He etched His name on my heart, on all of our hearts. We've been made in His image, made to know Him, made to enjoy Him. And isn't it true that there are times in our life where we suppress the truth of our Father and live as if God doesn't exist? Instead of resting in His love and enjoying His happiness, we forget our true home and go out in search of that distant country. In this way, I hope you can see that the distant country is more than place or geography. It's actually a state of the heart a heart that is prone to wander, prone to leave the one I love. I became a Christian in my teenage years. Uh, In that moment, I was adopted into the family of God. I was made a son of God. I received the fullness of His blessing. And yet despite all I have received in Christ, despite all you have received in Christ, there are times my heart forgets the goodness of God and seeks after that distant country. I was actually chatting to a journalist uh, on the Sunday night, kind of after the the saga with Essendon and and our church. And uh, I just preached from 1 Corinthians 15 about Jesus' death for sin. And she says, Guy, what has been your biggest sin this week? (laughs) How's that for an icebreaker? Uh, I wasn't sure if she was fishing for like a catchy headline, but it certainly made me think about what was an intense week. And I, and I started to reflect on, uh, on, on my anger uh, at how Andrew had been treated. I started to reflect on uh, my, my frustration uh, at hearing of you know, media turning up to our office and calling up my wife and tracking me down at an airport. I reflected on my own pride uh, at a few Christians who seemed to kind of want to use this moment to point the finger and, and throw us under the bus. Um, But actually, when it came to my own sin, uh, what I shared with the journalists is that what I lament most this week has been the distance I had from my wife and kids. Uh, It was a unique week that certainly demanded so much from me, but it did remind me of particular times, especially early in the years of ministry, where I'd put ministry, where I'd put church ahead of my own family, Uh, writing sermons instead of changing nappies, staying up late at night trying to prepare for the week ahead instead of being at the bedside of my own kids. Um, Instead of resting in the goodness of God, my own heart can, can run to that distant country trying to prove my worth and establish myself. Ministry is is dangerous like that. For pastors like me, we can take a good thing like leading a church and make it our everything. What about you? What is the distant country that draws you away from your Father? What is the good thing that you are prone to make your everything? For some, it's the lure of worldly success, the acceptance, the approval of man. For some, it's the thrill of lust, the allure of romance, the thirst for more. For some, it's the dream of family, the hope that if I can have everything right and my kids grow up okay, then I'll be someone. For some, the distant country is simply the need to be in control, to play by my own rules, to call my own shots. Jesus says, when the young boy had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. The boy had hoped to make a name for himself. But eventually, the bottle runs dry. Eventually, the women stop calling. Eventually, the rent is due. This is the great tragedy of life and our pursuit of happiness. In running to the distant country, we not only dishonor God... But we are lost to to a life that is nothing more than a a chasing after the wind. I love how uh, Russell Brand puts this. Uh, Brand, in many ways, embodies the younger brother. and I admire in him the the honesty when it comes to considering the, the futility and the emptiness of that distant land. Listen to his words. He says, I thought it'd be good to be rich and famous. It'd be good to have stuff. It'd be good to have money and be invited to the party. Well, I've been invited. I've been in and we're having this chat in a Swish private members club in East London. It's super cool. There's bare brick walls and everyone is double good looking. But I've been inside now. I've seen the other side of the looking glass and it ain't flipping worth it. It ain't flipping worth it. It doesn't feed your soul. I still feel empty inside. What do you do when you realize the world is not enough? When you study hard and you climb that corporate ladder only to find yourself hungry for more? When you give yourself to be a good mate, a good parent, a good colleague, only to realize that you still feel alone? What do you do when you find yourself going from one thing to the next, one project to the next, filling your life with so much stuff only to realize that actually you are empty? Jesus says, when the son came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The young man becomes aware of how lost he is. He was the toast of the party when paying for the champagne, but he now sees how utterly alone and miserable he is. And while misery is a terrible and awful fate, it is often the time, it is often the time of despair that the light of God's grace shines through. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this God, he whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What happens to someone faced with their own loneliness and pain? The young man remembers home. He remembers home. He remembers running in the open field and the warmth of the morning sun. He remembers Eggs Benedict on a Saturday morning. The smell of freshly baked bread. He remembers playing cricket with his dad, the ever-present love he knew in him. Why was I so quick to throw this away? How could I say something so disrespectful? Why did I... He goes through this in his mind knowing he can never pay his dad back for what he's done. He has lost his place at the table. But just to be near home, just to be close, just to be a servant, that would be enough. And so with empty pockets... And the weight of his own sin and shame weighing heavily on his back, the young boy makes the long and difficult trek home. And I must say that I admire this about the young man. It takes a lot of courage to repent. It takes a lot of humility to leave the distant country and make the long journey home. I know in my own walk how hard that is. No one wants to fail. We are all trying to do our best to make this life work to live an honorable life but somehow our flesh and this world have a way of finding us out of catching us out some of us fall drastically a lot of us it's it's a matter of drift but but either way we find ourselves faced with our own futility and sin and so the question is not so much do you see your sin but what will you do in the face of it how will you respond Will you hold on to your pride, cycling around in your own bitterness, regret, self-rejection? Or will you lay it all down? Will you surrender yourself? Will you make that journey home? Jesus says, and the young boy arose and he came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt, what's that word? Compassion. The father felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. Do you see the young boy in this moment? Do you see his head down his his body slumped by the weight of his own failure his embarrassment his humiliation oh he left with everything he's come home with nothing but now see the father See the father on the road, see him running and running, getting closer and closer until there in this moment on that road, he holds his son, he embraces his son, he squeezes and he kisses his son. Tell me, what are we to see in this moment? What does Jesus want you to see in this moment? He wants you to stand in awe of the love of God, the love of your Father. The great, unending, inexhaustible love that God has for you. It's been said uh, that the Father's response in this story breaks every protocol in the Near Eastern world. No dad would show this public display of affection, particularly to a rebellious son like this. No father would hitch up his road and come running and running like this. But of course, the father, the father that Jesus wants you to see is not like any other father. He doesn't play by the rules of this world. He is governed by love. In fact, John says, God is love. A love that, listen, pursues you in the mess. A love that will hold you even when you can't hold on to anything else. A love that promises to never let you go. You know, I think over the years, I've come to realize that one of the the obstacles of faith is not confronting our sin, it's, it's facing our Father. We look at the mess of our life and we immediately imagine God's disappointment. We imagine God shaking his head, pointing the finger. We see his disappointment at our lack of prayer at our failures to read the Bible, our, our own greed, our lust, our stumbling and falling, we see him distant and disappointed. And that's not to say that there aren't commands in the Bible telling you how to live. And it's not to say that God is indifferent to your sin. But do you know what, do you know what is the most frequent command in the Bible? Uh, what instruction is given again and again by God, the angels and Jesus himself? Is it don't sin? Don't be immoral? No. The most frequent command in the Bible is fear not. <laughs> fear not. Don't be afraid. Fear not. I suspect that underneath so much of our running is fear. I fear missing out, I fear being shut out, and in the end, We fear God's disapproval, God's disappointment. But do you see what Jesus is showing you today? Do you see what the parable is all about? The Father is not out to get you, the Father doesn't turn his back and close the door, the Father doesn't even put him to work. The father loves him. The father embraces him. The father kisses him. Standing in the arms of his father, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and, and shoes for his feet. And 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 bring the fattened calf and, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead, he's alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Isn't this beautiful? The son has returned, the father has embraced him and no sooner does he kind of confess his sin that the father is calling for a robe for his back and a ring for his finger and a party to be celebrated. And for me, this this clues us in, in the glory of the gospel. Sometimes we just think of the gospel as Jesus died for my sins, which is true, the debt is cleared. But don't stop there. Because the gospel heralds so much more. Jesus died for your sin. Why? That you could come home to the Father. That you could enjoy Him. Instead of walking in your own shame, He wants to clothe you with a robe of His righteousness and honor. Instead of trying to make your own identity in the world, He gives you a ring. and says, you belong to me. Your identity is secure. Instead of being a slave to this world or any other person, God says, you are my son. You are my daughter. This is what Jesus wants for you, City on the Hill. This is why Jesus came, that you would leave that distant country and come home. Early this year, uh, I had coffee uh, with a young man uh, For the sake of the story we'll call him Josh And uh, he had uh, connected with us uh, through our online services And started to attend um, with his wife and kid And uh, you know, I love hearing how God's been at work in people's lives And uh, Josh shares with me how he'd grown up uh, going to church And uh, had lived a, a pretty typical Christian life Uh, But he shares that as he grew up, he he began to drift from that life. Uh, He found himself driven by his career and chasing after success. He says, all of a sudden, I didn't have time for church, no time for Bible study, no time for Jesus. God became an echo. Uh, He goes on to share that, that the deeper he went into his career, the more he began to be immersed in a lifestyle of the world. He found himself surrounded by people who were living for themselves and his attitudes began to change. He became cynical and bitter. And then it all came crashing down. A spiral of depravity and sin that led to uh, depression and isolation and sadness and eventually his arrest. In the blink of an eye, Josh lost his reputation, he lost friends, he lost his job. Um, But you know what is amazing about God and the good news of the gospel is that amidst his mess and his misery, God had not let him go. God pursued him and the light of Christ broke through repenting of sin josh turned from that distant country and he came home to god sitting with josh that day uh, he tells me that he was actually days away from his trial we prayed together we prayed that uh, god would be his peace Uh, In the end, Josh was not spared from uh, time behind bars. But God's love was with him every step of the way. Today, Josh is now uh, out of prison, and this week he gave me a window into the many evidences of God's grace. Listen to this. In the early days of my prison sentence, I hated myself. I hated how I'd fallen so far, I was angry, lost, and defeated. But echoes of sermons and callbacks to the love shown by those who'd walked beside me kept shining through. Life is not defined by our mistakes and sins. But how could anything beautiful come out of such an ugly situation? In search of answers, Josh sought out a Bible. And it was in God's word that he found the redemption. Time after time through the Old and New Testament were examples of God's grace and unfathomable love. Why didn't this make sense before? Why here and now in a prison cell am I feeling the closest I've ever felt to God? Chapter after chapter, I was amazed. Prayer never felt so meaningful. I saw myself like the Israelites, God's chosen, who time after time strayed from God. Through their sin, tragedy would strike. God used the consequences of their sin to humble them and was always there to welcome them back. God took my shortcomings my sin, and my shame, the ugliness, all of it. It was nailed to the cross where his son Jesus took my place. I was to blame, but all was forgiven. Praise God. Praise God. And please note what Josh says next. I carried a certain peace with me throughout the rest of my prison sentence. This was eventually picked up by my cellmate, This opened the conversation and immediately I knew what I had to do. I shared the good news. I shared why I felt so secure and at peace. Through late nights, I would read the Bible with him. The week before my transfer out of prison, we prayed together. He fell to his knees and wept. That night, he accepted Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. There is no amount of sin, shame, ugliness that God cannot transform. He took me, shook me to my core, and rebuilt me from the ground up. All I needed to do was hand myself over and let Jesus in. Isn't the gospel <laughs> amazing? Isn't Jesus the best? Jesus isn't just true news. He is good news of great joy for all who believe, for all who let Jesus in for all who come home to him. What did his life look like? What did the life of the son in the parable look like in the days and weeks ahead? We don't know, but I'd like to imagine that the love and grace he received from the father began to change him because that's what grace does. It doesn't mean that we live perfect lives, but God's grace has a way of changing us from the inside out. Instead of strutting with pride, God's grace inspires a certain humility. Instead of being tossed around by the wind and waves of the world, God's grace grounds us. It's an anchor for our life. Instead of living with hard edges and a cold heart, the grace of God softens us. We can begin to meet other people with forgiveness, compassion, and kindness. And instead of living in, in fear, we, the body of Christ, can engage this world with love. It's what I love so much about City on a Hill. It's what I love so much about our churches is the way that you love one another and love those around you I actually checked in with um the bar manager at the European beer cafe after the saga with Essendon and the church wanted to see how she was going in the midst of that she says how are you going uh we attend that uh venue for our evening service here in Melbourne and 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 uh She was fine, and she says, you know, guy, a journalist actually came up to me and wanted to hear my take on the headlines. And I said, you know those headlines? It's all a bunch of BS. (laughs) Their words were a little more colorful than that. I'm giving you the light FM version. (laughs) And then she doubled down, and she said, I told the reporter that with all the different people we've worked with, with all the different groups that come in and out, this church is the most loving people we have ever worked with. Praise God for that. If a bar manager... Yeah. If a bar manager who, as far as I can tell, doesn't regularly go to church is telling a reporter of the love they have seen and experienced from a church, you can be sure it is by grace and grace alone. This is why I am so very thankful for this church. This is a church built by Jesus and His grace. And as we celebrate that 15 years of grace, as the band comes up and gets ready to sing, let me encourage you to, to live by that grace and allow this grace to now shape the years that we have ahead. We have lots of stories to celebrate, but there are more stories to be written, more chapters to come. And I want to encourage you to lean into that. I see a church that continues to go deeper with Jesus, to be bolder in our preaching and our ministry of the word. I see a church that is continue, continuing to do the hard and costly things to serve our networks and our neighborhoods, to serve our cities and suburbs, to serve the poor, the outcast, the disadvantaged. As I look to the horizon ahead, I see a people who are taking their discipleship seriously who are not living with one foot in the world and one foot in the church, but are all in for Jesus. Going deep in their discipleship, going deep in their love for one another, being authentic in our faith, standing secure in the unity that we have in Christ. I see a church that's proclaiming the gospel, sharing our faith in our workplaces, in our universities, I see a church planting more churches. Lord willing, we long to see 50 churches planted across 10 cities. All that people might know the beauty, the truth and the relevance of Jesus. I see a day, Lord willing, where we see hundreds, Lord willing, thousands of people coming home to Jesus. Just as the Father in this story runs to the road sharing that grace, so we long to be a church that joins Jesus in His good news. We have a big vision because we serve a big God. And now is the time for us all to be all in for Jesus. You know, if you've been sitting on the fence, perhaps, just checking this Christianity thing out. Don't stay and look on from afar. Come home. You don't have to have your life completely worked out. You leave the distant country. You recognize the futility of a fallen world. You come with nothing. And in Jesus, you receive everything. I believe today there are people that God is pursuing. Don't don't let this opportunity pass. Come and talk to me. If you're at one of our other churches, come and talk to one of the ministers, one of the pastors, anyone. Say, I want to come home to Jesus. We'd love to help you take that step. And if you are in Jesus today, pray that this grace would surprise you afresh this morning. Let's continue to be those people who love Jesus, who serve, who pray, who give, who proclaim the good news. That in Him, we might stand as a city on a hill and shine the light for Him. I'm going to pray wherever you are right now, let's stand. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel Work in our hearts now that we may celebrate you. Just as the Father rejoices over the return of the lost son, so we rejoice in the good news of the gospel. We do this for our good, the good of this nation, and the glory of your wonderful name. And it's in Jesus that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.